0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, welcome again everybody tonight. I feel like the past few weeks I've talked so much And taking us right past eight o'clock and not giving a lot of time for questions. So I hope to not do that tonight, that we'll have time for questions. But um, what we're going to do, we'll probably finish up next week, tonight, and then next week we'll finish up this series. But um, we've been talking about progressive Christianity, and we've been talking about this woke, kind of socialistic, Marxist type of culture. And so we have to kind of stop and ask the question, what are we as Bible-believing Christians supposed to do in relationship with the government? I mean, I had a lot of people come to me and say, what are we supposed to do? You know, how, how do we change the tide? That's a huge question, and I don't know if I have a lot of the answers for it, but I do want to deal with Romans chapter 13, because ever since the pandemic started back in March, and by the way, we are 20 days away from 15 days to stop the spread okay a year okay so we're 15 days away from a year ago 15 days to slow the spread and so when when the government tells you 15 days to slow the spread and here we are a year later i'm just saying Um, but i've had a lot of people um, come to me and ask these questions and and even back when this thing started back in march um, i had to process through uh, biblically, what's our what's our um, response to what the government's doing? And so, I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding of Romans chapter 13. I think a lot of well-meaning evangelical Christians have um, basically said something like this, and I've had f- pastor friends say this to me: You should obey the government no matter what, without any qualifications. Now, I don't agree with that, but that's what you're hearing a lot of people say. If you go to websites such as the Gospel Coalition, which is kind of a website I used to go to for a lot of resources, they've kind of gone down this path of Um, erring more on the side of following what the government says. And so with a lot of these lockdowns and churches having to be closed, um, there's not a lot of leadership coming from the evangelical world to help pastors like me navigate what to do. So a lot of this stuff came from me just sitting down with my Bible, sitting in a room with elders and deacons and figuring this stuff out. And so what I want us to do is I want us to read Romans chapter 13 and we're going to go to First Peter also because it's kind of a parallel passage. And I want us to read this passage of Scripture. Um, so let's read this, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll bring in um, a lot of different things. And hopefully at the end we'll have room for, for uh, questions, comments, and I will take snide remarks tonight too, if you have, if you have those. So, All right, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. For he is God's servant for your good. Pay attention to that. He's God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, there twice, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers ministers of God, attending to this very thing, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay. Now, I don't have a lot of notes tonight. You know why that's ca- the case? Because I'm in charge of this. And I don't want to keep clicking a lot. So I have a lot of things to say. They're not as much notes. I don't have a person back there running it. Um, so I want to start with two things. What does Paul not... Address in this passage of scripture. Okay, what is Paul not saying? First of all, Paul is not giving a full blown treatment here on the relationship between church and state. He's not saying everything there is to say about that. Okay, he's giving general principles on how we are to relate to the government, but there are, if you look at other scriptures, there are caveats and there are exemptions to what he says here. Okay, So when he says, be subject to the governing authorities, is that a point-blank statement under all circumstances? And it cannot be because of what we're going to see here in just a moment. Okay. Secondly, Paul is not specifically dealing with how to resist a tyrannical ruler. Um, how you practice civil disobedience. So that there's not a lot about that per se. What he's talking about here is how do Christians relate to a government and how the government is supposed to relate to, Christ, to, to, to its citizens. Okay? Now, the key word there is let every person be subject or to submit. I think think it's very interesting there. What word could have Paul used? He could have said obey, but he doesn't. He says submit. Now, there's a difference between submitting because in Ephesians, Paul says wives submit to your husbands. But he says children obey your parents. He doesn't say wives obey your husbands wives submit. So it means to line up in rank under God's authority structure. Now, we need to understand that this authority structure that God has designed comes from God. For example, when Jesus is before Pilate being questioned in John 19, 10 through 11, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me He's asking him a question. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't you know, Jesus, that I hold your, your life in my hands because I have the authority? And what does Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Talking about Judas there. What does Jesus say to Pilate? The only authority you have is what God has given you. It's interesting that right in the middle of Jesus being crucified, he had no problem addressing a government leader and putting him in his place about where his authority comes from. That's Jesus doing that. But he tells Pilate, you don't, don't, don't be so high. I'm kind of paraphrasing Jesus. Don't be so high and mighty thinking that you're all that, Pilate, because you're the one that's been given this authority because God has given it to you. Because what does it say there? No authority except from God exists, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So why are we to submit to the government? Answer, God has sovereignly instituted all governments. Think about it for a moment. What, if, what would happen if there were no government structures in the world? Chaos. You remember what life was like right before the flood? This is not in your notes, but turn to Genesis. This just popped into my head. Sometimes that happens, so be careful. (laughs) I don't have have this on the screen, but just turn turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This, This is right before the flood when God destroys everything. And you have to think, how bad must it have been in society for God to wipe everybody out except for one family? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, what does it say? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's scary. The world had gotten so evil, so bad, so chaotic, so lawless that God destroyed the earth. Now, if there was no government structures, that's how life would be on planet Earth. Just lawlessness, chaos, anarchy. Okay? God is in control of the kings and the leaders. Proverbs 8, 15 through 16. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Now I want you to notice something here. Almost every time the Bible addresses governing lead, government and governing leaders, notice what words are used there. Justly. Just. Now let's ask a question. When the Bible says that a governing ruler is to, is to rule justly, what's the standard for that? What's the standard for justice? God's word. God's law. It's not the arbitrary rule that the governor made up or that the president made up or that the ruler made up. It is ruling justly as revealed from God's word as to what justice is. So there's an accountability on the leaders to rule in accordance with God's word. So let's ask the question then, what is the purpose of government? John Murray, he was a um, Scottish theologian who ended up in South Africa and then later on at Westminster Seminary um, of the 20th century, has some really good writings on um, government and relationship of church and state. He says this, this is what he writes, it's a pretty good definition, the purpose of government. It is the function to prevent the encroachment upon and to guard the exercise of God-given liberties, rights, and privileges to citizens, and it must provide against attempts to deprive citizens of the opportunity to discharge those divine obligations. Okay. The God-given liberties, rights, and privileges of a citizen. We are really the only nation on earth that has that enshrined in our founding documents. We'll talk about this later, what are inalienable rights, God-given rights, that, 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 that God gives us, not the government. And so his definition is, God has given us these rights, and it's the government's job to make sure those rights aren't violated. That's the main purpose of government, is to make sure that your God-given rights are not violated. Okay? Now, we have an obligation to pray for our leaders. And sometimes we can be very, I can be very convicted about this. How many times have you complained about a leader and not prayed for them? How many times have you reposted something on Facebook about a leader and not stopped and prayed? You've, you've, you spent more time on memes than on your knees. <laughs> okay. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Okay, so we're to praying for all people all kinds of people, but then notice how he limits it in verse 2, for kings and all those who are in high positions, and here's the important thing, that, okay, why are we to pray for our leaders? That we, as Christians, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So here's my opinion. It's the opinion of Sean Cole, okay? The government's job is to get out of our business so that we can live lives that are peaceable and quiet. Okay? So we pray for the government to rule justly so that they don't infringe upon our rights as Christians so that we can go about and live peaceful, quiet, godly lives to the glory of God. That's the role of government. Now, is that what's happening today in government? No, because we have... All, all types of different governments in the world and all types of sinful leaders. Um, I believe the government's role is to be limited. Okay? A limited role of government. Mainly to protect, to protect your God-given freedoms, criminal justice, protection of human rights. But what has our government become? a universal parenting corporation in a nanny state to take care of everybody okay now here's a here's a question that a lot of people aren't asking the big question with romans 13 that i keep hearing is you've got to submit you got to submit if the government says that you've got to submit so you've got to submit you got to do what the government tells you no questions asked submit 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 okay let me just ask a question back to the governing leader how should the civil authorities govern We don't ever talk about that. In this passage of Scripture, we find out how the leaders are supposed to govern. Since they are appointed by God, they possess what we call a derived authority. And that is, their authority is given to them. It's derived from God. So if it's a derived, God-given authority, and they're God's servants... They are under obligation to govern according to God's law, as revealed in Scripture. Okay, I'm giving you the principle, not the reality. What's the reality here? Is that happening in reality? The principle is, is that the government, because God has ordained them, they are to rule justly. They are under obligation to govern the way that lines up with Scripture. And I'm going to give you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones here. It's not in your notes, but you can just listen. He says, We must not expect too much from the government because the business of the government is mainly negative. Its main function is to control and limit evil and the manifestations of evil. The state, whether it be a monarchy, oligarchy, democracy, or any form that you may choose, can do very little positive good, and people have gotten in trouble when they think it can. Okay? Tell us what you really think, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now... What I want to deal with tonight is the question that we've been asking with these COVID lockdowns with the um, and by the way in some states, they're just now opening up their churches for in-person worship. Right now, Pastor Coates in Canada we prayed about this Sunday night there is a pastor in Canada who defied a COVID lockdown restriction. He turned himself in, and he is in solitary confinement in prison cannot see his wife and his kids in Canada because the government said, you can only have X amount of people, you have to have social distancing, you have to wear masks. You know, they gave all the rules that they had to do, and he said, listen, we're a church, you can't tell us what to do, we'll worship the way we want to worship. And they came in and said, you're in violation. So he's in prison in Canada. It's happening in Scotland. It's happening in Australia. Okay. So the question becomes, this is the question that we, we kind of wrestle with. I didn't think I'd ever wrestle with this question until this COVID thing happened. You, you read this passage of scripture and it's kind of theoretical until it hits the rubber hits the road and you have to deal with it in the real world, especially when you're leading a church to try to figure out you know, how do you get all these people to get together on the same page. So the question is, when is it ever, or is it ever, appropriate to resist a government through civil disobedience? let me ask you a question should the government have tyranny over your conscience what if the government tells you to do something that goes against your God given conscience do you obey your conscience that God has given you or do you obey the government now this is a tricky thing because there is a limit to your conscience because you may think so for example you can kind of play the game. The government's going against my conscience. I don't like driving 55 in a 55 mile an hour zone, so I'm going to drive 75 because my conscience tells me I've got to drive 75. Now, is that really your conscience or are you breaking the law at that point? You're breaking the law at that point. Okay. What if the government says to me, what if I, what if I get a letter in the mail tomorrow from the governor of Colorado? To all pastors who preach from the Bible, you are hereby ordered to not mention anything about sexuality, marriage or transgender thing from your pulpit. If you do so, you will be fined and or imprisoned. What do I do? I throw the thing away. I burn it and I come in and say the first sermon I'm going to preach is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or I don't know or, or Romans chapter 1. So, that's something where the government is being tyrannical over your conscience. And also over the word of God that that dictates your conscience. Okay? So if the government ever forces you to go against biblical convictions, to go against your biblical convictions, or to prohibit you from exercising that, okay, those are two things. If the government causes you to go against your convictions, or prohibits you from exercising them freely, now we've talked about this before. You have the right to defy. Or disobey the government. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but I've mentioned this a few times. And this, this happened about 10, 12 years ago. They started changing the language on religious freedom. The First Amendment says you have the freedom to exercise your religion. And I've asked this before to you what does it mean to exercise your religion? You go out in the public square and you start lifting weights with your religion, and no, no. What does it mean to exercise your religion? to live it freely right okay that's what it's meant for the past 200 years is that you have the right in the public square to practice your religion to exercise your religion to speak freely about it without fear of anything coming upon you they've now switched the language in the first amendment to be not exercise but keep it to yourself and practice it privately it's okay if you believe that, but leave it in your house. Don't practice out in the public square. Or it's okay if you believe that in your church, just don't preach it. Okay? So let's look at some biblical examples here of when the early apostles, Peter and John, were told that they couldn't, they couldn't do what God called them to do. So in Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Now here's why, before we get to this, here's why Paul's teachings in Romans 13 are not absolute because you have these caveats right here. Okay, so you got to let scripture interpret scripture. If if you have another scripture where they're disobeying the government and you have Paul's teaching here, it cannot be an absolute teaching. There's got to be an exemption. We've got to be careful that we don't abuse that exemption, but we do see it right here. So in Acts 4, 18-20, So they called them and charged them not to speak, Okay, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, now let me just ask you a question. Does that go against Scripture? Does that go against your conscience? Is that the government prohibiting you from freely exercising your religion? Yes. What did Peter and John say? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. You're not going to stop us even if you try. We are under compulsion to preach and speak and testify to Jesus. You have no right to tell us to stop. And if you do tell us to stop, we're going to keep doing it. Now, they paid a price. They got beaten and thrown into jail. So let's just be real careful here, okay? If you do choose to defy the government, there may be a price to pay. And are you willing, am I willing, to pay that price, whatever that price is? Whether it's a fine, whether it's a loss of tax-exempt status, whether it's um, shutting down all your social media, whether it's closing down your bank because um, you can no longer receive tithes and offerings because your bank will no longer process things because of what you stand for. And don't think I'm that far off. There's ways that they can force you to do things without eviscerating the Constitution. A bank can say, we're no longer going to do business with you, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Facebook, we're no longer going to live stream. YouTube, we're no longer going to live stream. Internet hosts, we're no longer going to host your website. There's ways they can do that. We're going to take away your tax exempt status. We're going to fine you. There's a church in California that's been fined over a million dollars because they've continued to meet. And they keep getting notices. I've seen the pictures. they got notices on their front door. Notice after notice after notice. And he's like, okay, we're just going to keep preaching. And the fines keep piling up. So there are real-time pastors, real-time, no, they're fake-time. There are real-time pastors in our nation and in Canada that are really paying the price for this. And what concerns me is that we've got pastors that are choosing to worship and obey God and getting fined and getting prisoned, and for the most part, a lot of evangelical leaders are silent. They're afraid to say anything. And you know why I think they are? This is my personal opinion. I could be totally wrong. Back when, I mean, how should I say this? If you're watching on Facebook and you did this and you're one of my friends, please don't be mad at me, but I'm going to say something here. Um, back in May, when they, the government did the PPP loans, the private business loans, the small business loans to churches, churches could apply, apply for small business loans and get money there was a church in Texas a southern baptist church in Texas you know how much money they got from the government 1.5 million dollars other churches that I know of personally have gotten over hundreds of thousands of dollars now technically it's, it's interest free and it's loan free and it's, it's forgiving but here's the point anytime you take money from Caesar you're beholden to Caesar so we as a church did not take a dime And here's my personal opinion. There may be some pastors that are afraid to speak out because they took that money. And if they speak out and they took that money, then what are the ramifications of that? We as a church have a clear conscience to say we didn't take any government money. We're free to speak out because we're not beholden to the government in any way, shape, or form. Now, that's the issue. Now, the second aspect here in Acts chapter 5 verses 27 through 29, when they had had brought them, this is Peter and John again, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. So this is the top religious leader in Jerusalem. And he's like, listen, we strictly charged you, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, talking about Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered and this is, the, this is the clear statement you can find. We must obey God rather than men. Okay? So let me give you a John Stock quote. There can be no question here, he's talking about Romans 13, of an unconditional and uncritical subjection to any and every demand of the state. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands, this is is why I I like what he says here, if the state commands what God forbids and forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. Now, I've had the argument pushed back, and here's the thing about it. I, I'm being real personal tonight, I know maybe some of my, my pastor friends are listening, and we've had a lot of disagreements over this, um, especially my pastor friends that are on the front range. I've been on some Zoom calls with other pastors, and I've been in conversations with other pastors when this thing started, and they're saying things like, well, they're not preventing you from worship. You can still, you can still live stream. They're not really... They're not... They're not um, They're not just picking on churches. If they were just picking on churches during the lockdown, it would be one thing. Do you know why we opened up back on May 31st? Because our governor said that essential businesses can open at 50%. Pot dispensaries, bars, all these things can open up at 50%, but churches cannot. You're limited to 10 or less. That's discrimination against churches because pot dispensaries aren't protected under the First Amendment, whereas churches are. And so the argument goes, well, they're not preventing you from worshiping. They're just limiting your size. You can still live stream. They're not telling you you can't preach truth. You just can't gather. And this is where you get back to who gives you rights. Does the government give you rights or do your rights come from God? The rights come from God. So it's not like the government's giving you permission. Like when I keep giving these things from the governor, it's like, you know, the governor's giving you permission to meet. Well, thanks a lot, governor. You're not really giving me permission to meet. We're already meeting anyway because God's told us to meet. Thank you very much. I mean, things like that. But I get in these conversations with people, and the issue is the government has no right to tell a church when, how, where, the number, the number, some of the, like in California, they were saying you couldn't sing in church. You could not administer the Lord's Supper in church. Okay. Never in my life would I ever think that any government organization would come into a church and tell. We don't even have denomination. Our denomination doesn't even come in and tell us how to do stuff like that. All right. Now, some of you may say, well, what about Paul? He says, obey the governing authorities under all circumstances. Don't ever question the government. Okay, what did Peter and John do? Peter and John said, listen, we're going to obey God. We're not going to obey man. We're going to keep preaching. Paul, here's an interesting thing about Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And as a Roman citizen by birth, he had rights as a Roman citizen. And what you could do is you could appeal all the way up to Caesar himself if you had a grievance. And so the latter half of the book of Acts... Paul's on his way to Rome to appeal to Caesar for all these times he's been arrested. But there's, there's something that happened in Acts. So turn to Acts chapter 16. You guys know the story of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus, you and your household, you'll be saved. And then um, there's this great miraculous jailbreak <laughs> And then the next day, things kind of got a little crazy. So so turn to Acts 16, uh, 35 through 40. And I want you to see how Paul responded when the government authorities treated him badly. All right. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police. the magistrates would be like the local council, the local leader sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. (laughs) Okay, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and then they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. As a Roman citizen, Paul should have had due process. But they didn't even bother to check whether he was a citizen. They throw him into jail. They beat him, throw him into jail, make a spectacle. And then when everything's kind of calming down, they want to kind of sneak him out and not let him make a big deal about him. Paul's What does Paul say? We're not going to play that game. You guys unfairly beat me publicly as a Roman citizen. I did not have due process. We're not doing this secretly. And they're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize he was a Roman citizen. Whoops. They apologize to him. So when Paul was treated unjustly as a Roman citizen, did he sit back and say, well, I just got to obey the governing authorities and let them beat me? What does he do? I'm a citizen and I need due process here. Now, he probably did it kindly. I mean, he wasn't a jerk about it. Maybe he was a jerk about it. I don't know. Sometimes Paul can be a little little rough. But anyway... He got on to the local magistrates for for not taking into account his Roman citizenship. Now, later on in Acts, Paul is falsely accused by the Jewish leaders, and they bring him before Felix and Festus for trial. So he's falsely accused. Paul's innocent. And as a Roman citizen, he appeals to his rights to go above these leaders directly to Rome to get a fair trial. So turn to Acts 25, uh, verses 11 and 12. So this is another time. So this is the same man who wrote, this is the same man that wrote Romans 13. that says, obey your governing authorities. And we have two instances where Paul says, listen, when you act unjustly, I'm going to call you out for it, and I'm going to appeal to my citizenship and the rights that I have as a Roman citizen to get a fair trial or to get fair treatment. Okay, so Acts 25, verse 11 and 12. Remember, he's being unjustly accused by these Jewish people, and he goes before the tri- uh, Let's Let's go back to verse 10. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried, To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. What does Paul say? Paul says, listen, if I'm guilty and I'm tried by a court of law and I am guilty and it comes out that I'm guilty, I'll take the death penalty because I'm guilty. But I'm innocent, and I'm being falsely charged. And I'm going to appeal to Caesar, and I'm going to go all the way up the chain of command. Because you local leaders are having a kangaroo court where you're not treating me fairly. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to go above you up to Caesar. And what does Festus say? Okay, up to Caesar you will go. So, you have two examples in the Bible You've got Peter and John who said, listen, if you tell us to do something against what the Word of God says, we have to obey God and not man. We we can't obey the governing authorities. Paul, when he was treated unjustly, said, listen, you're treating me unjustly. I'm going to appeal to a higher authority. I'm going to go above you. Okay? Now, governing authorities, we'll talk about this in just a moment. It doesn't necessarily have to be a person. I'm going to just throw that out there and we'll get back to it in just a moment. When governing authorities abuse their power and they infringe upon your inalienable rights, we as citizens have the right to condemn that abuse, confront the authority, promote correction, and possibly change the laws or the orders. Do we see an example of Paul doing that? Did Paul confront injustice among government leaders? Did he appeal to a higher authority? Okay. So, the key here is unjustly. Now remember, back in Romans... How are the governing leaders to govern? Justly. They're God's servant for your good. So they are to be governing justly. Okay? With that being said, we must be willing to pay the price for our faithful witness in defiance of these tyrannical authorities. One thing you need to remember All throughout history, Christian leaders have spoken out against unjust governments. They've not been afraid to do it. You know, back in the 1700s, you guys heard of George Whitfield and and John Wesley? They were two British evangelists. They um, were not liked by the local pastors, and here's why. The local pastors were really boring and dry, and they weren't preaching the gospel and so Whitfield and Wesley would go out into the fields and preach the gospel, and like thousands of people would show up and people would get saved. And so, what the pastors would do, they're like, we don't like these guys because they're taking all of our church members and we're jealous. They would go get the local police and they would get a mob riot to come and try to invade their preaching events. And you have some sermons examples where John Wesley and George Whitfield spoke out against the governing authorities for doing things that they thought were unjust. So, the justice comes from God's word, and we must confront. There's two things. When, you, when we as a church confront, or let's say as I, I as a pastor, the, the mouthpiece of the church, when you confront injustice, you're really talking to two people, two groups of people. You're talking to the congregation and teaching the congregation biblical truth, but the second person we, we're also doing is we're instructing the local leader. Have you ever thought about that? Our governor needs to know what it's our governor needs to know that he's been put in that place by God. He's accountable to God. He will stand before God on the day of judge, judgment, and he must govern the state justly. Who's going to tell him that? How is he going to know that? Unless Christian leaders say that, that can be through a letter that was that, that our denomination sent to him to appeal to him to open things up. Back when things were were being shut down, um, it can be through a lot of different different um, areas. So we must remember that Romans thirteen does not offer unqualified obedience to the government. What I mean by unqualified is. Okay, does that mean that you obey in every... Can you say that Romans 13 means that you have to obey in every single, all circumstances? No, because you have some examples that we just saw. So it's not unqualified obedience with no qualifications. So the role of the government is to punish evildoers who violate God's laws. Okay, so if somebody murders, is that breaking God's law? Should they be punished? If somebody steals, are they breaking God's law? Should they be punished? Okay? When governing authorities reverse this, this is very important because this is what we see happening right now. When governing authorities reverse this by praising evildoers who break God's laws and then punishing those who do what is right, they are violating their God-given authority and will have to give an account on the Day of Judgment. So think about this for a moment. If you're in California and you're allowing strip clubs and massage parlors and pot dispensaries and you're in Nevada and you're allowing casinos to open, would you guys call, I mean, I'm not, I'm not faulting you if you go to the casino, but let's just say, go into a strip club, we all agree that's wrong. A Planned parent abortion mill, we agree that's wrong. A mis- you know, An erotic massage parlor, we'll be- I mean, those things are evil, right? If a government says, we're, we're going to let you do those things, but we're going to punish you if you do church, what's the governing authority doing at that moment? They're not punishing the evildoer, they're actually punishing those that do good according to God's law. And they're not living up to what they're supposed to be doing in Romans 13 of punishing evil according to God's law. Now let's talk about the Constitution for a moment. I'm just bringing this in. Now, we can have the conversation. Well, What about the people that live in North Korea? How do they deal with Romans 13? They deal with it differently. If you want to move there and live there, you can deal with it. But I'm talking about where we live right now. Until the Constitution is is eviscerated or is voted out by two-thirds of the states, or somehow it's no longer the covenant-binding contract of the United States of America, it's still our document. And we still live here. By God's providence, we live in America, which still has the Constitution. And until that changes, that's the document we we live under. So what does the Constitution tell us? Okay, what's the First Amendment? The First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, because that's the establishment clause. Congress can't say there's a state church and you're mandated to go to it. Everybody has to be Episcopalian or everybody has to be Mormon or everybody has to be Hindu and you have to go to it. They can't establish a national religion. Or, negatively, they cannot prohibit the free exercise thereof. That's the most important one. The government cannot prohibit. What does prohibit mean? Stop, not allow you to what? Free, the free exercise. Or abridging the freedom of speech or the press, or the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for the redress of the grievances. Do you guys realize that also when a church gathers for worship, we're peaceably assembling also? That's one of the ways we exercise our religion, is by peaceably assembling together as God's people. So, here's the problem that we had, and some states still do. With mandates, the lockdowns, all this stuff that's going on, you've got a one person, a singular governor, one person, making unilateral decisions not voted on by Congress, not voted on by a House legislature, and they're being granted emergency powers for an indefinite period of time where there's no accountability. Now, here's the problem. Whenever you grant a person in power unlimited emergency powers for an undefined period of time, Are they going to give that up easily? Okay. So, when you have one person making unilateral decisions for an entire state, and you have no say in it through representational government, you can't even send a senator or congressman to go vote, and there's no period of time is that a violation of the constitution it is now i want to introduce you to a term that you've never 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 heard of and it's not when i say negative i don't mean this in a bad way negative rights there's positive rights there's negative rights okay america is based upon what we call negative rights and i don't mean that by by bad negative being bad what i mean is it's also called inalienable Rights. Okay, so the freedom to worship is a negative right, not a bad. Okay, not negative meaning bad. Ne- negative meaning this: it's already been given to us by God, and the government cannot negate or take away that right. It's funny because. Um, when the supreme court rules on something i like the way that christianity today supposedly christianity today the magazine that's not the way that they their headline was supreme court allows churches to reopen there's bias in that statement it should be Supreme Court recognizes the inalienable rights of churches to open and should have done it a long time ago. I mean, it's just even the way that they word it. Okay, so, question. Be subject to the governing authorities. Does the governing authority always have to be an individual person? What is the highest authority in our nation right now? Is it a person or a document? It's a document. It's the Constitution, which is actually more than a document. It's a compact between states that have entered into a binding agreement (coughs) of how we're going to operate as a nation. And so the highest law on the land right now is the Constitution for Americans. I'm making this very specific to us as Americans. So... When the Bible speaks of the governing authorities, these do not necessarily have to be people, but it can be a binding contract or a national document such as the Constitution. Can one person, let's say a governor or a president, or even a Supreme Court justice, can they make unilateral and arbitrary orders in a state of emergency? with no accountability and no end date. What? They think they can. Now, we need wisdom with this, okay? Let's, let's think about what we've learned. When COVID hit about a year ago, we didn't know the nature of the, of the disease, did we? We heard it initially the reports were 2 million people could get killed in America. Whoa, that's a lot of people didn't know much about the virus. So under prudence, we said as a church, we're going to shut down for a period of time. Um, We're going to shut down for a period of time and um, we'll assess what's going on. So March came, April came, May came and more data came out. What did we find out about the data? It wasn't necessarily as bad as we thought it was and we basically felt like the governor was being unfair with his stay-at-home orders favoring those essential worship uh, businesses and not allowing um, churches to operate. So we as elders came to the conclusion through reading the scriptures that the government does not have the right to tell us when and how to worship. So, we were the first church, I meet with pastor friends every Wednesday, and they're always like, Sean, you're the tip of the spear, and we're going to follow you, because you'll be out there getting, you'll, you'll tip the arrows first, and we'll be behind you. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, we'd, I just said to the other guys, I'm like, we're opening May 31st, and we're not asking for permission. As a matter of fact, I sent emails to the police chief to the sheriff, to the county commissioners, to the mayor, to the county health department, and to uh, Jerry Sonnenberg, our senator. And I said, out of courtesy, as your neighbor in Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, uh, we're not asking permission to open. We're notifying you that we are opening. And um, that's what we did. <laughs> and I got emails back from all saying, well, as long as you, you know, practice social distancing, go for it. Um, and so we did that. And it's interesting because the decision we made on May 31st was a decision to say, we as individual Christians and we as a church have the inalienable right to gather. And that's something God tells us to do. We're going to do it regardless of whether the government gives us permission or not. Now, the ironic thing that happened, okay, in December, I don't know if you guys remember this, in December, around December 8th, I think, in New York City with the Jewish, there's some Jewish synagogues, the Supreme Court voted five to four saying states cannot regulate the number of worshipers and tell churches and synagogues how they are to operate. So immediately, Governor Polish changed his tune and a new order came down. And basically, the order came down as Churches, you're kind of on your own. We can't can't tell you what to do. Just make sure that you you police yourselves and do good social distancing. So it took the Supreme Court all the way to December for the governor to tell us, give us permission now to do what we already knew we were going to be doing back in May. So anyway, should we automatically believe everything our government tells us. Okay, I'm being really, I'm getting myself in hot water tonight from all aspects here. Okay, We need to be very, very careful when governing authorities argue that their decisions are based upon the public good. Because if you get enough people that are panicked and enough people that are fearful over any issue, the government can step in and say, we are here to protect you. We are here to promote the public good. And so trust us, that's our job. And when you cede power to the government in a period of panic or pandemic, the more authority you cede to them that they don't have that gives them the ability to say ah look how easy it was the next time around it may not be a pandemic we could just say you know what we saw that insurrection that happened on the capitol and we know those are a bunch of evangelical bible believing christians and they're terrorists and so to to protect the public good we're going to start surveillance on all christians and churches to make sure that and other insurrections don't happen across the country. Because after all, we're protecting the public. Good. Let me just ask you a question. What do do these same governing authorities say about abortion? What does our government say about abortion? Is it the breaking of the Sixth Commandment? You shall not murder? Okay. If... If our governing authorities, worldview, says it's okay to murder, then what makes them think that what makes us think their worldview does not condone the breaking of the ninth commandment? Lying. Okay, you saw this on full display this summer. What were we told over the summer? Churches don't meet your super spreaders, churches lock down. Don't go to church. Don't sing. Don't celebrate Lord's Supper. It's super spreaders. Don't do church. But go out and protest in the streets as much as you can. Gather to a Black Lives Rally. Go, you know, tear down stuff and because that's for a good cause. Okay, so what the question is, are we in the pandemic or are we not in a pandemic? Did the pandemic stop? So, It's okay to go do that during a pandemic, but it's not okay to go to church. So the question is, is it a political issue? Is it okay to go do stuff for the right cause? So can you trust everything that your government tells you? Now, here's something that we hear a lot. I've heard this over and over again And I want to be sensitive to how it's being used. There's a confusion over loving your neighbor. How many times did you hear at the very beginning, we're shutting down church because we're showing love to our neighbor. We're loving our neighbor. We want to love our neighbor. Um, You know, love our neighbor. I I just talked to somebody the other day that that came back to Colorado who's been in another state. And um, he's like, I can't believe you guys are like wide open and all this stuff. He's like, they're like shut down over there because, you know, the church is supposed to love their neighbor. All right, let me just ask you a question. What's more loving to your neighbor? To voluntarily say, you can come to church, we're not forcing you. If you want to come, you come, and you hear the gospel preached, and you have hope, and you have somebody to listen to you, and you, and you have good counsel, and we're going to witness to the lordship of Christ, or we're just going to stay shut for all these months. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people that are hurting people that are searching who can't go to their church because it was shut down and they decided to go to another church in town that violated the shutdown orders i know of one church in california that they were running like 400 before covid it's like a normal pretty big-sized church they're in a county that they defied the governor's orders and they said, we're opening up anyway, kind of like we did. Okay. Now they're running like 2,000. They have like six services. And he's like, I can't tell you, we didn't do any, we didn't do any like marketing campaign. We, we didn't even do anything. We just opened our doors and preached the gospel. And all these people came flocking. Okay. So loving your neighbor... Yes, we don't want to purposely give somebody COVID. We need to be careful in how we interact with especially people that are at risk. But one of the things that I had to come to grips with is this. If you guys remember back in April and May, we, we sent out that survey to the church and said, how many of you are willing to come back? Okay. Almost 70% of the church was willing to come back. Okay. So that means 30 percent's not. Okay, so I had to think about this as Pastor. I've been keeping telling, people keep telling me, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your flock. Okay. Is it loving my flock when 70% of you want to come back and I'm preventing you from coming back? Am I truly loving you? Now, I'm not saying that the 30 that decided not to come back were wrong. That's a personal choice that they, I encouraged them to make because they were at risk. And some of you are in part of that group that it, take, it took a while to come back, and there's still people that haven't come back. That's a personal decision based upon your own risk level. But for me as the leader to say, I've got 70% of my flock that want to meet, and for me to say, no, you're not going to meet, that's not really loving them. Because guess what you would do? you go to some of the other churches in town that were open, I guarantee you. I love Emmanuel, I love Pastor Sean, but, I mean, they're shut down. I've got to have fellowship, I've got to have preaching, I've got to have connection. You know, he's choosing not to go to meet. I'm going to go to another church that's meeting my needs. Now, whether right or wrong, that's a reality, and that's happening all over the country. I mean, pastors are losing people like crazy because they're going to churches that are open. Now, here's the thing. Let's talk about everything we've talked about up to this point. Progressive Christianity, COVID lockdowns, woke culture, cancel culture, infringement on free speech, all the stuff we've been talking about. There is an importance of gathering for public worship no matter what. No matter what. Back in 2017, the Chinese Communist Party cracked down upon churches in China and they arrested a lot, of, a lot of pastors. I don't know if you remember that. And there was a pastor named Wang Yi, and he was a representative of a lot of these pastors, and he wrote a document before he was arrested, before they were arrested, of some non-negotiables that they wanted the Chinese communist government to know. It's like, if you're going to arrest us, here's what you need to know, okay? And this is what he said at the beginning of his document. This is a Chinese pastor who knew he was probably going to be arrested. This is what he was leading his church and a lot of pastors. He was kind of the forefront of this. He said, This, under no circumstances will we stop or give up on gathering publicly, especially the corporate worship of believers on Sunday. God's sovereignty is higher than any secular authority, and the church's mission and the Bible's teaching on not neglecting to gather together is higher than any secular law. And I'll go on and read the rest. I just didn't want to put it in a long quote. Let me read to you the rest of his statement. Regardless of whether the Religious Affairs Bureau and the police take administrative and forceful measures toward Sunday worship, whether or not their enforcement follows due process, I will resist by peaceful means. I will not cooperate with the police banning, shutting down, dissolving, or sealing up the church in its gathering. I will not stop convening, hosting, and participating in the church's public worship until the police seize my personal freedom by force. Basically means they gotta come take me out in handcuffs before I stop. And if I'm in the middle of a preaching a sermon, they better come and take me out. And and so this is what the Chinese, this is what the Chinese pastors were saying before they got arrested. It's a non-negotiable, that we are not going to stop meeting for worship. And here we are in America, not a communist country, not fear of somebody coming and dragging us out by force, and we have pastors saying, because we want to love our neighbor, we're not going to meet for worship. And I don't want to cast stones at those pastors, but what I want to just say is that Gathering for worship is a non-negotiable. It's mandated. We must do it. And the government really has not a right to tell us how to do it. What's been very difficult for me as a leader through this is I've not gotten a lot of direction from our denomination. As a matter of fact, this this will be public out on Facebook, and that's okay because our church knows this we are a Southern Baptist church and one of the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Religious Liberty Commission. During this whole lockdown, that Religious Liberty Commission gave no guidance to the churches on how to deal with this stuff. Um, and so a lot of this stuff came from my own personal study of Scripture and looking at other What's been sad, and I hate to say this, and it may get me in trouble, this whole, this whole Facebook thing may get me in trouble, I've been pretty disappointed in our denomination's leadership. I've gotten more encouragement, really from the Calvary Chapel movement, which is not even in our denomination. Calvary, for some reason, Calvary Chapel churches, and a lot of them are in California, are really leading the way in, in, in defying these things. Um, and so it's like where are the Southern Baptist leaders in my own denomination why do I have to look outside Um, and so let me just give you two examples okay I'm going to I'm going to kind of pick on my alma mater here which I think is very interesting okay so I'm a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville Kentucky they required all of their students and faculty to sign this covenant when COVID came out and if I was still a student I could not sign it let me tell you what it says It says, as a member of this seminary and college family, I affirm and recognize that we are not just a school. Together, we serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Together, we're called to love one another, respect one another, protect one another, serve one another in the spirit of Christ. We enter into this covenant together, and in the season of the coronavirus, with lives and health at risk, this is the part that bothered me. We affirm together that we will follow and obey all rules, policies, advisories, and, pra- and practices required by government authorities mandated by our institutional responsibility and communicated by institutional leadership. We will follow and obey all rules, policies, and advisories and practices required by the government. I couldn't sign that because what, it, what is it saying? It's saying it's unqualified obedience to whatever the government says. And as a seminary student, I would have to struggle. I would have to say, you know what? I appreciate the spirit in which this is written because we don't want to be a super spreader. We don't want to spread coronavirus. But I cannot, in good conscience, sign a document saying that I'm going to point blank obey all and every dictate. Because once you give the government that inch, it's going to take a mile. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, one of the things that people often talk about, too, is, you know, if you guys gather for worship and people get coronavirus, you're going to damage your witness. I've heard that saying, if you, you know, if you guys, you know, if you go back and, and, and gather for church, you're going to damage your witness in the community. Um, what about our witness, Okay. Does it damage the church's witness to gather in person in obedience to God's word and preach the gospel? Or does it damage our witness to allow the government to dictate unjust and arbitrary mandates that prevent us from doing what God has called us to do? Okay. Now, let's just look at a bit. Let's go back to the Bible here for a moment. I feel like I've done a lot of prognosticating and pontificating and stuff. Um, Can we influence and change the government? Can we influence change in the government? The answer is yes. And we need to understand our sphere here as individual Christians. The institutional church's role is not to advance a social justice agenda or to get involved in politics. The church's role. The organized local church's role is preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, making disciples, and doing missions. But individual Christians can make a huge difference in government by their activity. You understand the difference between the institutional church doing it versus individual Christians? Okay. And we have a lot of examples of where individual Christians did some amazing things in the government. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 1 and let's see these brave women that were the first... um, the first defiers of tyrants, <laughs> the Hebrew midwives. So who's the top dog in the land of Egypt? It's the Pharaoh. And what was the Pharaoh wanting to do? The, the Israelites were increasing in number, and so he wanted to do some like population control, so he asked the Hebrew midwives to basically killed the babies when they were born. Okay, so let's, let's go to verse 15. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. And this is an important verse, verse 6, 17. But the midwives, notice, feared God. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. They defied the tyrant. What did he tell them to do? Violate God's law by murdering these baby boys when they're born. But what did they do? They feared the Lord. They feared the Lord more than they feared the punishment of Pharaoh. What could a Pharaoh have done? He could have killed the Hebrew midwives. Okay, so they actually made a difference individually by going against the edict of the king. All right, what about Daniel? Daniel, if you remember, was basically the right-hand man of King Nebuchadnezzar. He also was the right-hand man of um, the other other kings as well because he lived to be pretty old. But in Daniel 4.27, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says right to the king, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Again, what what does Daniel say to the king? You're not leading justly. You're being an oppressive leader. I'm using my influence in the government to get in your face, king, and tell you, listen to my counsel. If you act justly, perhaps God may lengthen your prosperity. Now, Daniel could have just like been quiet and not gone to Nebuchadnezzar, not caused waves, and not gotten his face, and just, you know, he's a, this guy's a, he's the top king in the land, and he, he's kind of a, a fearful man. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to approach him. But Daniel, as a godly man, influenced the top person in country what about jeremiah what did jeremiah do well if you think about jeremiah when israel was ransacked by nebuchadnezzar and they were carted off into babylonian captivity so they're 900 miles away going from israel to babylon what does jeremiah tell them to do when they get back to babylon Jeremiah 29 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf, or in its welfare you will find welfare. Pray for the city. Let me just say this, a lot of people have been asking me, how can I make a difference? It just seems so systemic, it seems so big, it seems like it's just overpowering. Sometimes the greatest difference you can make is right here locally. Run for a school board. Pray for the mayor. Pray for your county commissioners. Run for county commissioner. Pray for the superintendent of schools. Pray for the police chief. Pray on a local level. Are we praying for these local areas? Are we praying for the welfare of our city? Because um, if more Christians across the country are influencing at a local level... Oftentimes, those local levels, leaders end up moving up the chain. State, national. I don't think it's going to be a top down. I think it's when a bunch of Christians across the country start impacting their local communities and making a difference that you're, you're going to see a change. Through praying and maybe even getting involved. How do you know what your kids are learning? Are you on the school board? Do you go talk to your administrators? Not that you're a jerk about it, but, I mean, are you aware of what's going on in our our culture? Okay, what about Joseph? Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. He was the highest official in Pharaoh's court. He had great influence. He was able to make decisions related to the grain Moses, we know what Moses did. Moses went directly to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Esther became queen and had significant influence on the decision making in Persia. John the Baptist, we talked about him Sunday morning. He got put in prison because he got in the face of King Herod. What did he say? So so with many exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. If you trace world history, some of the greatest reformations in culture have happened through Christians making a difference. Do you realize that in the early church in Rome, in the days of the Roman Empire, Christianity was responsible for outlawing infanticide, child abandonment, abortion, and the gladiator battles? Because Christians made a difference. Property rights for women. You know what they used to do in India with widows? They would burn them alive. Christians stopped that. You know what they used to do in China? Foot binding little girls think of william wilberforce who ended slavery in egypt i mean in egypt in england Um, probably in egypt too if there was but in in england through the parliament if christians throughout history said you know what i'm not going to get involved i'm going to sit back somebody else is going to do it think of some of the things that may never have been ended or some of the things that may never have been changed now, you have to pray for wisdom about your level of involvement, but if Christians aren't involved in somehow changing culture, politics, entertainment, education, corporate America, we can sit here and complain all we want, but until Christians start getting involved, it's never gonna, never, nothing's ever going to change. So there's two ways you can do it. You can cocoon and go into a little island and say, you know what, I'm afraid of the big, bad world, so I'm going to go hide out. Put your head in the sand, and then when you pull it out, it's like a whole new world. <laughs> or you can say, you know what, in my sphere of influence, with the, with the, the ability I have and the, and the people that God's placed in me and the little influence I can make, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And it may just be small, but you're being faithful to what God's called you to do in the little things if a bunch of Christians around the country do that think about the difference that can be made um let's see we got 10 minutes I'm going to do this we were going to go to 2nd Peter chapter 2 but it's almost saying the same thing that Paul said um I'm going to go right to the end I don't know what sheet it is but it's conclusion (laughs) because I want to give time for questions I told you I would and I don't want to go all the way right up to the time. and uh, Let's see here. You guys can go back and read those notes. So, conclusion, as Christians in our relationship to the government. All right. As Christians, we should thank God for our government. As ba- All right, so as bad as America is, would you want to live any place else? Not yet. Okay. Okay, we should recognize God's sovereignty over government and leaders. We should pray regularly for our leaders. We should generally, most of the time, follow the laws of our government so far as they don't violate God's word or bind our consciences with arbitrary unjust orders. We should refuse to give to the government absolute allegiance as this only belongs to Jesus. Jesus. And one thing we need to remember is Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So questions, comments, clarifications. We've got about 10 minutes tonight. And I will repeat your question for those that are listening online. If there's no questions, you guys get 10 minutes early. Andrea. But it did nothing took the place of that first time of coming back. Yeah. Uh, You cannot, I don't care, you cannot zoom a touch. Yeah. You you can't zoom a face to face, gosh, you're here or some later. Yeah. You know, you cannot do that compassion without being here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I did that was because I did not want people to, like when the pandemic's gone, they could come back to you and say, well, you know, basically I can stay home and watch it on screen anytime because this is what church is. Let me tell you the most um, sad, the saddest moments for me during the pandemic So when I was in here by myself on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I tell you, it was hard. I'd come in here on Sunday. Well, I'd come in here on Saturday night and I'd preach it just so it would make sure it would it worked. So I'd come in on Saturday and i preach it, get it all ready, and then I'd go back there and then I'd, I'd watch the live stream and look, look at the comments and make sure it was going. And then I'd turn off the lights of an empty sanctuary and walk out to a parking lot with my car and be like, this is the saddest thing ever. Like, where's my church family? <laughs> it's like, I mean, one time I walked out, I was like weeping. I'm like, oh, I can't. I don't know how much longer I can handle this. Um, I think one pastor said it's like, yeah, you can you can have a television set of a fireplace, you know like the fake fireplace on your television set, but there's not, it's not going to really keep you warm. It's kind of like a live stream. you can watch a live stream, but you're not going to get the warmth of having a, a church family. so yeah, good words, Brent Daniel three sixteen to eighteen. I'm just repeating it for the. Is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? mm And he says, you know, what Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in If that's the case, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery Christ. And he will deliver us from your hand, O kingdom. But if not, then it be known you, Do not serve your God. Yeah. Yeah, that was one good example I forgot to put in there. Yeah, God's going to deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not bowing. That's a lot of faith, because what will we say in America? God, I hope you save us, like crossing your fingers. What does he say? Even if God, we, we have confidence God's going to save us, but if he doesn't, we're still going to not bow down to the golden calf or the, or the statue. Goes to the window and prays. Yeah, they say to him, Don't go pray or you know, and he goes immediately and he goes to an open window and prays three times a day so they can see him. Yeah, he never changed his habits. So anything else? Hitler. Yeah, when you give one person whoever it is, if you give one person or one entity unlimited, unchecked unaccountable, undefined power, most people that are in politics like that power and it's hard to give it up. Very rarely in history have you had anybody, do you know, who was our first president? Yeah, George, they wanted to make him king, remember? Remember? And he wouldn't even run a second term as president. I mean he was the first president that basically said, I don't want this this is too much too much power. So very rare. John, yes. Thank you for being one of the very first pastors to have the boldness over. Yeah. Well thanks, Frank. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. It was um the thing that made it a joy was we had a, I went through that whole document, the theology, but then we had a meeting with elders and deacons, and we brought in some health department people in our church and law enforcement, and we went around the table, and it was unanimous that everybody said we've got to do this in obedience to the Lord. So that makes it a joy when it's not Pastor Sean says we need to do this, and where's everybody else? But it was, you know, it was everybody sensed the will of the Lord there. So I appreciate our leaders. And I appreciate the other pastors in our town. As, as a matter of fact, I tell them this. I've gotten more encouragement and support from the other pastors in town as we've navigated through this whole thing than I've gotten from anybody else just because we kind of walked through it together and, and encouraged one another and prayed for one another, and we still, you know, we still do that. It's been a, it's been a joy. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Basically, um, probably two things. I'm trying to figure out how it's going to all come together. But next week as we close, probably two main ideas. Number one is that more than ever, we're definitely going to need each other as a church family. We're going to need, the, we're going to, need to have the, safe, the safety in numbers, the safe place. The fel- we're going to need each other. And then number two, we're going to have to learn how to suffer well. So that's kind of where we're going to go next week. We need each other. We need to suffer well for the glory of God. Because um, one of my goals as your pastor is to prepare you to suffer well, prepare me to suffer well, because it may come sooner than we think in some way. Any last thoughts, comments? All right, well, let me pray for us, and then um, if you have any other thoughts, you can come up and share those with me afterwards, but then the rest of you can go get your kids. Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. I know this is a very difficult subject because it seems like there's just so many different views and opinions and different ways of approaching the issue. And, Lord, we want to be gracious. We want to be um, understanding. We want to know what your word says. Lord, help us, if anything, just to remember that you're sovereign over all, that you're the king, and that our ultimate allegiance is to you, Jesus, and that uh, this is not our home. We are just passing through as sojourners We are strangers in a strange land, and our true citizenship is in heaven. Um, And until you come and take us home, help us to be salt and light. Help us to lead quiet and peaceable lives. Help us to pray for our leaders. Help us to stand up for truth, Lord, even if it costs. Um, Help us to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.